Welcome to the Speak Up Talk Radio Network. I am Pat Rulo, and I'm here today with a recent Firebird Book Award winning author to share with you. He is Bob Zeidman, and his winning book is titled Animal Lab. Bob created the field of software forensics and founded Software Analysis and Forensic Engineering Corp. to develop and sell software forensic tools. He is the founder of Zeidman Consulting, an engineering consulting company that has worked on over 245 major litigations involving billions of dollars of disputed intellectual property. His cases have included Connect You versus Facebook, on which the Oscar-winning movie The Social Network is based, and Oracle versus Google that went up to the U.S. Supreme Court. He is the inventor of the famous Silicon Valley napkin novelty item on display at Computer History Museum. He is also a high-stakes poker player, and his latest tech venture is Good Beat Poker, a new way to play and watch poker online. He's been writing regular articles for the Epic Times, The American Spectator, Real Clear Politics, Political Vanguard, and White Rose Magazine. He is the author of four winning novels. He earned an Opus Magnum Discovery Award from the Hollywood Film Festival for his novel titled Horror Flick, where he got to walk the red carpet with Hollywood celebrities. And his latest novel is titled Animal Lab, a modern update to George Orwell's Animal Farm. It is a warning about the possible coming collapse of American society and along with it, American principles, values, and freedoms. Torches that have lit the path for the advancement of the human condition for over two centuries and that must not be allowed to be extinguished. Obviously, we have so much to talk about, so let's get going. Welcome to the network, Bob. Hi, Pat. Thanks a lot for having me. I wanted to read that full bio because it is just rich. There's so <laughs> there's so much there. We can't talk about everything, but before we get into your book, I think we need to talk about the cocktail napkin. What's that all about? Yeah, that's funny. I was going to mention that. My wife and I have a running joke that that's my greatest accomplishment. <laughs> because when I, when I was younger, uh, I, I just, as you can probably tell from my bio, I get a lot of ideas. And uh, I'm proud to say that I act on a lot of them. Some are successful. Most are not successful. Uh, but the napkin was when I was fairly young, right out of college. And yeah, I, of course, people know about the pet rock and various fads like that, novelty items that took off and made people millionaires, uh, and with the pet rock subsequently made the person a non-millionaire eventually. Uh, so I decided to try my hand at it. I thought it would be fun. And I created a napkin for entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley where I was living, where, as a joke, you hear about all these companies. It, you know, it's, it's, some of them are stories are true of companies getting started on the back of a napkin mm -hmm. at some bar. A couple of people are discussing ideas and write it on a napkin. Compact computer allegedly got started that way. And so I thought, well, what if I created an outline so people could just fill in the blanks on a napkin? <laughs> and I did that. And, you know, you fill in the blanks and you become an instant multimillionaire. And uh, really couldn't get a lot of traction with it. It turns out that the costs of a napkin, the cost of a novelty napkin are so much higher than the cost of just a regular napkin that most places didn't want them, with a few exceptions in some parties, high-tech parties, for example, some uh, uh, big events, conferences. So I, I sold a bunch of them, but I had boxes and boxes in my garage, and I eventually gave them away to friends. 
Years later, the Computer History Museum happened upon them and put them in their computer exhibit. Unbeknownst to me, I was actually a volunteer at the museum, and there one day I saw the napkin. <laughs> <laughs> Except they had the wrong information. They had it attributed to somebody else. So I showed them my copyright, and uh, they happily changed the information. And I suddenly became a celebrity that uh, when computer pioneers, people who had invented the personal computer, people who had uh, created software and started companies <laughs> would come up to me and ask for a picture with me, the inventor of the uh, Silicon Valley napkin. So it made me famous within a group of very famous people. They they wanted to know me as the inventor of the napkin, which I found really fun. And I ended up making, started making a profit on it um, after the museum put it in their exhibit because we started selling it at the museum gift shop also. I love this story for so many reasons. It's just so inspiring. As you said this, you have so many ideas, but you just don't act on them. To see something to fruition is what it's all about. Yeah, and the, I think what's interesting there to me, and I, I like to talk to entrepreneurs and the students and encourage them, this napkin took something like 15 years or more to become profitable. Mm -hmm. And and even if it hadn't been profitable, it wasn't amazingly profitable. The profit was enough to buy a few nice dinners every few months. But it it really built my reputation. So sometimes mm -hmm. I think you have to look at things other than the money. You have to look at how does it help your career? How does it establish you as as a person of creativity, for example. Absolutely. And sometimes it takes years to become an overnight success. So that's yeah, exactly. a fine example of that. Wow. Thank you for sharing that with us. I think that's that's pretty interesting. All right. Well, listen, congratulations on the book win. That was happy too. Oh, thank you. Yes. Yes. So let's talk about the book, Animal Lab. Share a peek into the book. Sure. So Animal Lab is about a laboratory where one day the animals wake up, uh, there's no humans around, and they discover that they have the power of communication. They can speak to each other. And it's, in my mind, it's, uh, I've always enjoyed uh, uh, the um, Twilight Zone, for example, where a situation is created that doesn't have a logical explanation. Uh, and it's, it's not so much science fiction because you don't really care about the science behind this. You just care about what would be the consequences of this happening. And so in this case, the animals decide they need to form a government to be able to uh, control and, and uh, basically co uh, coordinate everything, let's put it that way. And they read about a farm in England where animals tried a socialist system and it didn't work out. And of course, I'm referring there to the famous book, Animal Farm by George Orwell. And my idea is that they decide to form a uh, democratic republic, which seems like a much better idea. And it's a story of what happens after they form this government and basically how different ideologies uh, come into conflict. And it's a parallel to what I see happening in the United States these days, where although we have what I think is a great form of government, uh, and, and yet there are people, I think, who don't understand the principles and because of their good intentions are putting in place policies that are actually eroding 
American principles. How was it to write, say, allegorically? Maybe give us a peek into the process of that. Sure. So one thing that I do with all my fiction writing is I'm very organized. I have an engineering background, a mathematical way of thinking. Uh, I've gone to writers' groups and writers' retreats where some writers feel that that's not creative and they push back against any kind of organization or structure. But for me, anytime I write any fiction, I start out with an outline of where I want to begin, where I want to end, and then I start writing the outlining the chapters in between, mostly the beginning points and ending points. For every chapter, I say, okay, I want I want the, it to start with this incident and to end with uh, some other incident or end with uh, an epiphany of one of the characters. And then I start filling in the chapters. So that's for every novel I write. And But with this one, I reread Animal Farm. I, I feel like I have a very good talent for mimicry. Uh, although I hope it's a little more sophisticated than that. But I noticed that when I observe something or read something or watch something, I'm very good at imitating the look and feel and the pacing. And so in, in the case of Animal Farm, I really tried. It's not like I consciously said, let me do, let me write this exactly like Animal Farm. But after reading it, I kind of got a very good feel for it. And then I went to writing my animal lab, and I feel like I kept the same tone, the same kind of characters, the same kind of dialogue. It's, I, I, in fact, at one point I wanted, I thought it'd be fun to have the exact same word count, but at some point I, I found that was just too limiting. It, I didn't want to start playing with mm-hmm. the story just to get an exact word count, although it's pretty close to the word count of Animal Farm. Interesting. So. In a nutshell, what message do you want to convey with this book? I think the message is that, well, first of all, this is my second political satire, allegory, political novel, I should say. And in both cases, I, I want people to read them because they're an enjoyable read. I've, I really love fiction. And sometimes some fiction has, uh, is preaching a message. and that preaching comes through and too, too easily. In other words, it seems more like a, uh, uh, you know, an essay than a novel. And I really wanted uh, Animal Lab to be something enjoyable, regardless of what your political philosophy was. And I wanted to be food for thought, though, for anyone, regardless of political ideology, about how people with very good intentions, can put into place policies that, uh, again, detract or, or deteriorate or erode American principles. And, and I'll give you the biggest example. You know, one of the biggest examples going on these days is I think, unfortunately, so many people don't understand what free speech means. And free speech means that you need to allow speech that you absolutely hate. There are some extreme limits, like uh, uh, speech that's encouraging violence. But other than that, I think people have forgotten that. And I'm a, I'm 62 years old, and I speak to a lot of people that I went to high school with. 
And we learned all about the principles of free speech, and we know that free speech is something you need to tolerate even from ideologies that are just horrific because it's not up to us to, to, to stifle what we don't like, but rather to encounter it with our own speech. And I think people are forgetting that. People of my generation are forgetting that, that, uh, you know, that we need to allow all kinds of speech. So that's one American principle that's, that's touched on in the book that free speech means that you're going to hear things you don't like. And the way to combat that is to state thing, state arguments to overcome the speech you don't like rather than banning the speech you don't like. Mm -hmm. You're talking about those with good intentions. Here's a question. If those who you say have good intentions are watching their policies erode the values of American society, is that still considered good intentions? Yeah, you know, and, and by the way, good intentions, the title of my previous novel, the similar kind of theme, I, I think it is. You know, I think this is something, I'm politically conservative, and one of the things that's hard for my colleagues who are also politically conservative to keep in mind is that there are people who really do have good intentions. I don't think they mean to, uh, you know, erode American values. They just don't understand the long-term consequences of what they're doing. So, for example, banning, you know, let me give you a, an extreme. And this is people on the right and the left politically that I know Many of them are in favor of, for example, banning Hitler's Mein Kampf. Now, this is an extreme example. I'm Jewish. I lost family members, you know, ancestors in the Holocaust. And yet I don't believe in banning Mein Kampf. As horrible a book as it is, it gives an insight into one of the most horrific events in human history and the man and the, the thinking of the man behind it. And I believe that that must be read by people so that we can understand how that started so that we can recognize when it starts again. And yet many people on both the right and the left believe in banning, I'd say the moderate right and the moderate left believe in banning that because it's such a horrible book. But banning it means we will no, never understand how it started or the thinking process of the man who started it. I agree with that 100%. Um, the whole cancel culture and the banning of books, it's akin to the book burning of previous times. How do you learn from mistakes if you have nothing to inform you? Exactly. And, you know, I can tell you, I guess I, I can, I'll tell you that I left the Authors Guild, unfortunately, because they started, uh, objecting to free speech policies. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they, they say they're all for free speech, but uh, in the last few years, there were policies that they, they were advocating for the ban of certain speech, political speech, and I tried to convince them that they were wrong for any kind of ban. I've also seen that with other writers groups. It's really unfortunate when a writers group starts promoting the ban of certain speech or not promoting the enforcement of free speech because of some political ideology. I think that every writer's group should be, in fact, I think a writer's group might go overboard with free speech. Mm -hmm. I think a writer's group 
should be more likely to allow speech that I might say crosses the line. But I think it's their job to enforce free speech, not to ever encourage the batting of it. It should be an open place where people are allowed to express themselves. And if you don't like it, well, then don't read it and, and move, right. move on to something right. else. Yep, yep. Now, just to, add, just to add something, I've been involved with some groups that protect kids. I think children are different. Sure. Children's minds are forming. Yep. I think children's parents should have some say in what their children read. Once they become adults, I think they should make they should choose for themselves. But children are influenced, and and their minds are forming. And I think there needs to be adults, particularly the parents, who have a say in what the children can and can't read. So I have no problem with with that. Oh, I agree for sure. The the, the minds need to be protected until, and as you say, the parents are the ones who are raising the children, they should be the ones to determine what is read, what is learned, what isn't. And then when they're old enough, well, then, hey, you're on your own. You can go off and do as you please. I agree. What about feedback? What kind of feedback have you received from this book? So most of the feedback's been very positive. I found that, so I used to write novels that were just fun. I, I still, I mean, I think all my novels, I hope, are fun reads, but some were just escapism. And uh, this and the previous novel were political, uh, politically conservative. Uh, I have I have people who I know uh, are, are disagree with my political philosophy, although they're they're fairly moderate and they like the book and they tell me and they've written good reviews of it. This one and the previous one, uh, which I really appreciate because I've had them say, "Look, I don't agree with the." politics, but it was a really good read, and it got me thinking, which is why I wrote the book. But on the other hand, I do find once in a while someone just doesn't like the content, and I found on Amazon, I get some really bad reviews. There's usually nothing accompanying it with it, no explanation. Mm -hmm. I also once hired a, for my previous book, I hired a professional review, and even though the person, the reviewer said that he liked the book, it went well, it flowed well, it was a fun read, gave it a terrible review, because at some point he said uh, something about the politics are just wrong. And and it's hard for people to disassociate the politics with the review. I know I've seen movies, for example, which had a message that I didn't like, but it was well done. Mm-hmm. And I'd have to give it a good review for production, dialogue, plot, um, but I think it's hard for a lot of people to separate their ideology from the craft of writing. Mm-hmm. So I think from uh, overall, the reviews have been very, very positive, but also uh, a few horribly negative ones <laughs> without much explanation. Sure. And you have to just accept that for what it is, is that those that just can't get past, as you say, the ideology and, and are basing it solely upon that. Interesting. You're kind of brave to put it out there, actually, during these times. But that's what we need yeah, is more, pe- more, more people to be brave and to speak up and speak out and, and say what they need to say. Um, once we begin giving in, there goes free speech. And as far as I'm concerned, yeah, there's no it, good intention be- behind stifling speech. Yeah, like I said, I think, I think the majority of people who are part of cancel culture really think they're doing the right thing. I think they just don't see the long-term consequences mm-hmm. of, you know, if we get into politics, I, I don't need to get into it too much, but I'll say something like the end of the filibuster. A lot of people on the left say, let's end the filibuster. 
and uh, I try to. I've written a lot of articles and on politics, and I've said to these people in my articles, I've said, okay, you want to end the filibuster so that we c you can get your agenda passed quickly without the objections of 49% of the country. But what happens next time when Republicans are in power and they decide to uh, ban abortion, mm -hmm. for example? You won't really, you don't realize the consequences of your events of your actions long term. Again, I think they they don't see a lot of the people who are part of cancel culture, part of the changes going on, don't see the long term consequences. They just think, well, our people are in power now, or we can do something now and make great changes, but they don't see what will happen during another election cycle or another swing of the ideological pendulum in America. Yep. You know, the, the optimism I try to keep, it's really hard, but the optimism I try to keep is I read a lot about history. And if you read about this, obviously, if you think about the Civil War, America went through something much worse than we're going through now. And uh, I was recently watching a documentary on William Randolph Hearst, and how newspapers could start wars. The Spanish-American War was started by William Randolph Hearst, basically. Yep. Um, that that there have been pretty bad times in America. We've gotten through them, uh, where there's been a lot of uh, dissension, a lot of uh, polarization. I'm just hoping that we get through this one, too. Absolutely. And as you mentioned, media, that surely is not helping the situation today as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, along those lines, I'm sure you've, you're aware of this, but just on a personal level, I I write stuff that I always think, I, by the way, it's always fact-based. I always have references when I write essays about anything. My articles are full of links to, um, and not fringe uh, sources, but mainstream sources to support whatever facts I've got. And yet I've been banned a couple of times on LinkedIn mm -hmm. by referencing Ivy League university professors because I've been told that I'm spreading false information. I know. So let's move on. What's next for you? What are you working on now? <laughs> well, a lot of stuff. But as far as my writing goes, I'm still writing articles. Uh, political articles. I wrote a short story. I don't, I'm not sure what to do with it. I just get an inspiration. And, uh, but I do have an inspiration for just a fun poker, a movie about poker. I've been playing a lot of poker. I have a, I'm starting a company for online poker. Um, and in playing so much high stakes poker, I live in Las Vegas now. I moved from California. In playing high stakes poker games, I just find a lot of interesting characters, mm -hmm. uh, ranging from very wealthy, retired individuals to people living day to day. It's funny how major poker players who've made millions of dollars, some of them still live in hotel rooms and, you know, seem like college students. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, and, by, and it's a complex situation. So I, I've one day I got this idea to do a uh, caper movie, like an Ocean's Eleven kind of movie, but with poker players. And because both of them are brilliant, some of them are very temperamental, some are very unsocial, uh, and some are just kind of wild and crazy. Uh, and I thought it would be fun to mix these people together. So I'm, I'm starting a screenplay about a, a poker caper movie. Oh, I love that. Where you live is fertile ground for some kind of a madcap 
plot. That sounds like fun. You'll have to keep us posted on that. Okay, I will. <laughs> All right. Well, as we begin to wrap up, I want to make sure we're not missing anything that you wanted to talk about today. I don't think so. I can just tell you that the one thing that popped into my head is that after my last novel, I, I love writing novels, but it's the marketing and all the other stuff that's a lot of effort. And it's very rewarding, but financially, the other things I do end up being more rewarding. Mm -hmm. uh, but I just love writing. But I told myself after my last novel that I wouldn't write another one. It's just so much work. Um, and even though I love I love it and I love the result, mm -hmm. I just thought I got it out of my system. And then the pandemic hit, and I had just moved to Las Vegas, my wife and I, and I found I had time on my hands. So I started writing political articles. That I, I was surprised that I could write one a week. I wrote one a week for, for almost two years, and they were published. But also during that time, I'd been thinking about this, about Animal Lab, and I finally just sat down and write, wrote it. It just surprised me that the pandemic, for everything that it did that was bad, which is a lot of stuff, uh, it inspired me to just start writing again. So um, it took me by surprise. Just one day I sat down and said, okay, let me start doing this. And about a month or two later, I was done. Uh, so I don't know if that's I don't know what that means. Maybe it's inspiration for somebody. I think that uh, there can be a silver lining to bad things and never say never. I've spoken to so many folks who, during this pandemic, did find the time, and people got very introspective as well, and I think it brought out a lot of writing from within. So as far as yeah. that goes, I do think it was a, a really healthy time for people to find a new part of themselves that they either didn't know exist or didn't have the time to kind of look inwards at and bring out and bring forth via their writing. So that that is one positive. Thank you for bringing that up. I think that's a pretty inspiring thought. All right. Well, how about any contact information where folks can find out more about you, where they can purchase your books? Sure. Well, the book's available on Amazon. And uh, they can also go to SwissCreek.com. It's Swiss like Swiss cheese, creek like uh, body of water, dot com. And it has all my books there. It also has my wife's book. My, my, my wife is an artist, but she wrote a book about all of the major wars in American history and traced her family. And it's a uh, basically a tribute to the people, the soldiers who kept America whole and safe for the past two over two centuries oh and what's the title of that book uh, it's called ghost she she does some beautiful photography where she mixes uh modern day pictures of scenes like the civil war combined with ghost images from the time of the civil war oh, wow. yeah I... and i can just tell you just i'll tell you briefly we went to all the civil war battle sites up in well a lot of the major ones up and down the east coast mm -hmm. And all I did was hold her camera equipment, but she went to great pains to match up exact locations with old pictures from the Civil War so she could superimpose them precisely. Oh, that must have yeah. been really fun to do. A lot of work. Yeah, yeah, a lot of work, but a beautiful book and, and really touching. I'll have to look at that. So that's at SwissCreek.com. 
Yes. Excellent. All right. We're talking with Bob Zeidman. His book is titled Animal Lab, the one that won the Firebird. And his website is SwissCreek.com. Bob, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you for today. Thank you for finding us and for sharing you with our listeners today. Sure. Thank you for having me.